Hey, Dave. Hey, Ryan. You know what time it is? Yeah, it's time for the Twisted Crypt Haunted House. Holy cow. Opening night, Friday, September 20th, 2019. The first 30 paid guests get a free t-shirt. That's right. They're open all Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays through Halloween. Friday and Saturday, they're open 7 to 11.30, and Sunday, they're open 7 to 10. Where are they located? 5420 East State Street in Rockford, Illinois, right behind Tom and Jerry's and Uncle Nick's. Awesome. We'll see you there. Hell yeah. Question, comment, or concern? 872-242-8311. Or maybe you'd just like to hear your voice instead of ours. 872-242-8311. Then call the D2R Podcast Network hotline at USA Chat 311. That's 872-242-8311. 872-242-8311. No matter the time or day, you can call 24-7 and operators will be standing by. 872-242-8311. Your call is important to us. 872-242-8311. So once again, USA Chat 311. 872-242-8311. 872-242-8311. 872-242-8311. Check out all the great deals on Amazon by first going to d2rpn.com and clicking the Amazon banner. By doing so, you're helping out the D2R Podcast Network. Don't forget to tell a friend, and thanks for listening. Tested and approved Doomsday Bunker. Here is Ryan the Area Man. Well, I think everyone knows that the Zapruder film is the is the preeminent assassination record that we have today. Uh, there were several home movies taken that day, but the best one by far, uh, in terms of uh, magnification and field of view and quality was the home movie made by Abraham Zapruder. Now, he was a dressmaker. He worked uh, in the building across the street from the book depository. 
He didn't even bring his camera to work that day. His secretary sent him home. Go home and get your camera. He went home and got his camera. He filmed the motorcade uh, coming down Elm Street and captured the assassination. For several decades uh, after the assassination, uh, everyone presumed, naturally, I think, that the Zapruder film was authentic and that it, that it was the closest thing to ground truth that we had about the Kennedy assassination. Beginning in the uh, late 1980s and on into the 1990s, different researchers began to have doubts about whether the Zapruder film was an unaltered, authentic film or whether it's an altered record of what happened. Has the Zapruder film been altered in some way? The key problems were, number one, was there a car stop? Many, many eyewitnesses, approximately 50 people in Dealey Plaza, uh, insist that the president's limousine came to a complete stop during the assassination. A brief stop for perhaps one and a half or two seconds, but that the car did come to a stop. We don't see anything like that on this film. And yet some of the most persuasive witnesses to the car stop were the people closest to the limousine, people standing on either side of it on Elm Street, and many of the motorcycle policemen who were either escorts for the limousine or escorts for cars immediately behind it. So uh, that's the first problem with the Zapruder film, is why doesn't it show the car stop that over 50 witnesses recall? Another problem is that Zapruder and his secretary both recall that Zapruder started shooting the movie when the car was on Houston Street and filmed it turning onto Elm Street. That is not seen in the film today. Recently, some researchers have begun to study the image content in the frames of the film. One researcher in particular in California, Sidney Wilkinson, purchased a dupe negative, a duplicate 35-millimeter negative of the Zapruder film from the National Archives. She and her partners in Hollywood have uh, created high-resolution digital scans of each frame of the Zapruder film. They believe they see irrefutable evidence of alteration of image content. Specifically, they believe they see blacking out of the back of the head in the Zapruder film, which is significant because the back of the head is where all of the medical staff at Parkland Hospital in Dallas saw a wound on President Kennedy when he was treated on November 22nd. The medical staff at Parkland Hospital in Dallas, Texas, who attempted to save President Kennedy's life, only saw two wounds on his body. Uh, they saw an entrance wound in his throat, directly below the Adam's apple, and they all saw a rather large, uh, gaping, avulsed, blown-out exit wound in the right rear of his head. In the right rear of his head, not the top of his head, not the side of his head. They saw a wound in the right rear of his head. That wound that they saw was devoid of bone and scalp. Brain tissue was exposed. The Zapruder film does not show such a wound. Uh, the new high-definition scans created in Hollywood from the duplicate negative from the archives show many frames where the back of the head is blacked out, rather crudely blacked out, as if someone had wanted to obscure the wound seen at Parkland Hospital, and yet we see other head wounds on the Zapruder film that no one saw at Parkland Hospital. We see the top of the head apparently damaged, the right side of the head apparently damaged in the Zapruder film, and yet no one at Parkland Hospital, and I mean no one, saw such damage on President Kennedy. And he was treated for 40 minutes. Uh, so these medical experts who were well-trained and who knew how to identify wounds and knew how to describe their location 
uh, had plenty of time to observe the wounds on his body, and no one at Parkland saw the wounds on President Kennedy's head that are portrayed in the Zapruder film. So we have a car stop that's not shown in the Zapruder film. We have head wounds that no one saw at Parkland Hospital on the Zapruder film. And we do not have on the Zapruder film, we do not see the wound that they did see at Parkland Hospital. Instead, we see a blacked-out portion back here. So there are many reasons today to focus on the Z film. And uh, there's a lot of research going on right now, and its uh, I'll just say it's ongoing. Stay tuned. The Zapruder film has had a very interesting journey. Abraham Zapruder shot his own movie on November 22nd. It was developed at the Kodak plant in Dallas, Texas. After it was developed, he took it to another lab. They ran off three copies on a contact printer. He took the three copies back to the Kodak lab. They were also developed at the same Kodak lab in Dallas. So on the day of the assassination, we had four versions of the Zapruder film. We had the camera original, and we had three uh, copies made in a contact printer. They were all slit to 8 millimeters that day. So Zapruder had a double 8 millimeter film. Double 8 film as inserted in the camera and as shot in the camera was 16 millimeters wide and consisted of opposing image strips going in opposite directions. We had an A side and a B side. After developing, the normal procedure at the developing plant was to slit the film or split the film straight down the middle and then splice those two sections together so that instead of having a 16 millimeter film 25 feet long, you would have an 8 millimeter film 50 feet long. And that's what was done. Uh, after the original and the three copies were developed, the day of the assassination, all of them were split to 8 millimeters. Zapruder took his original film home that night, showed it to his wife and his daughter. He then showed the original film the next morning to a representative from Life magazine, Mr. Stolle, and to the Secret Service in his office at the Daltex building. On Saturday, November 23rd, Life magazine implemented the first of two sales contracts with Mr. Zapruder. The first contract on Saturday was for $50,000, and it allowed them to have uh, worldwide print rights. Now, this was printing rights for still images only from his motion picture. Life magazine was to be allowed to borrow the original film for one week for the making of these high-quality still images. Then after one week, they were to give it back to Mr. Zapruder, and he in return was to give them one of the three copies. On Saturday afternoon, the original film that Mr. Zapruder had sold to Life was put on an airplane in Dallas and sent to Chicago by Life magazine. Mr. Stolle did not go with it. He put the film on an airplane. Until recently, everyone thought the story went like this, that Life magazine had the original film in Chicago all weekend, the weekend of the assassination, and that they were busy taking stills from that image for publication in their future magazines. We now believe that's not the case at all, and uh, I'm prepared to talk about that in some detail. Something happened that weekend to cause Life magazine to want to repurchase the film in its entirety. So, and, and you've got to understand, this was not to Life's financial benefit. This was to Mr. Zapruder's benefit. Life reapproached Mr. Zapruder on Sunday, November 24th, the day before 
President Kennedy's funeral. And they said, we'd like to renegotiate our sale contract with you. We would like to buy the original film and all the copies and maintain possession of them and have not only worldwide print rights, but worldwide motion picture rights. We want all the films and we want all the rights to the films, including motion picture rights. So, of course, Mr. Zapruder said, sure, I'll, uh, I'll do another contract with you. So the sale contract was rewritten on Monday, November 25th, the day of President Kennedy's funeral. And that contract, instead of for $50,000, the new sale price was $150,000. Spaced out over a period of six years, Mr. Zapruder was to get $25,000 a year. And Life was to get the original film and all the copies and the motion picture rights. Now, what's interesting is is that after spending an extra $100,000 to obtain motion picture rights to the film, Life magazine in 12 years never once, never once did they exhibit the film as a motion picture or license it for others to exhibit it as a motion picture. So they paid extra money to do this and then never used it as a motion picture. In my opinion, the real reason that Life magazine repurchased the Zapruder film was to suppress that film as a motion picture. We all know today that, yes, the film seems to contain evidence that President Kennedy was shot from the front because his body is propelled rather rapidly to the left and to the rear. I also believe the film was altered the weekend of the assassination. In 1963, before the era of digital technology, before computer-generated imagery, there were limits to what one could do to alter a film. One could remove, let's say, frames of debris exiting the president's head and traveling toward the left rear. One might be able to remove a car stop, but there were things in 1963 that one could not do with the film. You can't change the motion of someone's body in the car. There was no CGI in those days, so I believe that the film was crudely altered the weekend of the assassination to black out the location of the true exit wound, to paint false wounds on the president's head that would appear to be consistent with a shot from behind, and that uh, although these alterations were done, they weren't done very well. I don't think they would have stood up to the scrutiny of a let's say, a television studio. If you licensed the Zapruder film in 1963 to someone who wanted to show it as a motion picture, you would have to loan them the film. They would have it in a telecine machine. They'd be studying it frame by frame. And I think that some of the alterations done, the, some of the crude alterations done to black out the true exit wound uh, probably would have been apparent to anyone borrowing and studying the film on a frame by frame basis. So so I think that's why Life never exhibited it as a motion picture after paying for the right to do so. I also think that the motion of the body, the head snap, uh, back and to the left that we've all become so familiar with, is evidence of shot, shots from the front. It's just evidence that the alterationists couldn't remove from the film. There's only so much you can do to alter a film in 1963. That's evidence of shots from the front that you couldn't remove. And because you couldn't remove that, Life uh, chose to suppress the film. Now, we know that C.D. Jackson, the publisher of Life magazine, had a long career in and out 
of intelligence. Uh, he was in and out of intelligence with the U.S. government, then back into the private sector, back with the government, back with the private sector. Started his, he started his career in London in World War II working for the OSS in propaganda, Allied propaganda. He also uh, rejoined the government in the 50s and worked for President Eisenhower in a propaganda role. Uh, so I think uh, Mr. Jackson's friends in government encouraged him and the magazine to repurchase the film, put it under wraps, release still frames from time to time as desired, but don't show that film as a motion picture. I don't think they wanted the crude alterations to the uh, wound imagery to be detected, and I also think they were, they were afraid that people might focus on the, the motion of the body back into the left. So the film wasn't exhibited as a motion picture for 12 years. Only when a bootleg copy of the Zapruder film was aired on national television in 1975 by Robert Groden and uh, ABC Television, only then did Life magazine suddenly lose interest in the Zapruder film. Uh, that very same year, Life magazine sold the film and all of its film elements that it had back to the Zapruder family for one dollar. For one dollar, after paying $150,000 for the film. They sold it back to the family for one dollar in 1975, after the bootleg copy of the film had become widely seen. Now, the Zapruder family placed the film in the physical custody of the National Archives in 1978 for what was called courtesy storage. They knew that the archives could store the film uh, at a low temperature, 25 degrees Fahrenheit, and you know under good security conditions, and that was in their best interest, so they placed it in the archives for courtesy storage. In 1992, the U.S. Congress passed the JFK Records Act. That's the act which also created the Review Board, uh, the Zapruder family was aware that the JFK Records Act was going to allow the government to declare certain items to be assassination records and that the government might then take these records, uh, assume ownership and control of them, permanent control. So the Zapruder family, uh, in approximately 1993, attempted to remove their film from courtesy storage in the archives. The archives said, we're sorry, not so fast. The status of your film is uncertain. It may be declared an assassination record by the review board, and so we are not going to give it to you. So the negotiations proceeded from there. As it turns out, the, the ARRB did hold hearings on the Zapruder film, recognizing the seminal importance of the film. Uh, it was declared an assassination record. And effective in uh, August of 1998, the U.S. government became the owner of the Zapruder film. In exchange for that, the Zapruder family was very fairly compensated, uh, more than fairly compensated. The Congress voted to give them uh, $16 million as just compensation for the taking of their film. So they made a windfall profit. And the, the what I call the extant film, the existing film, I don't call it the original because I don't think it's the original film. The extant film resides in the archives today under uh, controlled conditions, 25 degrees Fahrenheit storage, and the archives has made a forensic copy, a 35-millimeter copy on an optical printer that researchers may access. And, in fact, it's this forensic copy that uh, 
Sidney Wilkinson in California has purchased. The weekend of the assassination, we now know, the film had a very different chain of custody and very different history than we once thought. I was the point man for the Zapruder film on the Assassination Records Review Board staff. I worked with film issues for three years straight, and we became aware, I became aware in 1997, that uh, the Zapruder film had actually been in the custody of the CIA over the weekend following the assassination, and uh, not necessarily in the hands of Life magazine in Chicago, as we had been led to believe. In 1997, uh, I conducted uh, interviews of two gentlemen who worked at the CIA's NPIC. The NPIC was the National Photographic Interpretation Center in Washington, D.C. It was the CIA's number one film lab. Most of what the lab did in those days was aerial photography from the U-2 spy plane or satellite photography but they also did other types of photography, anything related to intelligence. The review board staff located in 1997 two persons who worked with the Zapruder film at NPIC the weekend of President Kennedy's assassination. And the names of these two men were Homer McMahon, the head of the color lab at NPIC, and his young assistant at the time, Ben Hunter. We conducted a total of six interviews, three interviews of each man. And uh, this is what we discovered. About two days after the assassination, which would make it Sunday, November 24th, a Secret Service courier brought the Zapruder film to the NPIC in Washington. Now, this is late Sunday night. These men were sure it was a couple of days later, and they were sure it was before the funeral. The funeral was Monday, November 25th, so this had to be Sunday night. The Zapruder film was brought to NPIC Sunday night by a Secret Service agent named Bill Smith. He told these men that it was the original film and that it had been developed in Rochester, New York at a codenamed facility named Hawkeye Works. Now, Hawkeye Works was a uh, sensitive codename used at the time by the CIA for the Kodak Company's number one Research and Development Lab. So the Hawkeye Works Lab, R&D Lab, was located at the Kodak Main Industrial Site in Rochester, New York. It was a civilian, Kodak-owned and operated research lab that dealt with all types of film. Some of the film that the lab dealt with was the Corona satellite film and the U-2 film used by the U-2 spy plane. So there's a problem here. When we have a Secret Service courier delivering the Zapruder film, to the NPIC in Washington on Sunday night uh, and telling them that it was the original film, that it had been developed at Hawkeye Works in Rochester, and then presenting them not with an 8-millimeter film, but with a 16-millimeter wide, apparently unslit, double-A film. Now, the job of the NPIC was something uh, that makes perfect sense. Uh, their job was to take the film delivered to them by the Secret Service, and, and make blow-up images of particular frames and to uh, put the blow-up prints, mount them on briefing boards so that they could be presented to officials of the government so they could be studied. It was a way to study the evidence in a motion picture film in more detail, to, uh, to blow up 
many times the original size. Remember, the original frames are only 8 millimeters wide. So to, to blow these up to 4 by 5 inch prints, mount the prints on briefing boards with some accompanying information, and then <clears throat> deliver your briefing boards to the customer. So Homer McMahon and his assistant, Ben Hunter, were working that night with an unslit 16 millimeter wide double eight Zapruder film, which still had opposing images, uh, opposing image strips, images going in opposite directions. It had an A side and a B side. The, the A side was a family movies taken by the Zapruder family. The B side is the assassination on Elm Street in Dallas. Uh, these images were going in opposite directions on the film. The film was 16 millimeters wide, as if it were a brand new unslit film. Homer McMahon uh, remembers putting this film in his, in his enlarger, his 10 by 20 by 40 enlarger, the world's best enlarger in existence, state-of-the-art equipment, and making uh, internegatives of individual frames uh, that were 40 times the original size. 40 times bigger than the 8-millimeter film frame. And then from those inter-negatives, he made color prints. He and his assistant made three sets of prints. They made 28 inter-negatives. From those 28 inter-negatives from the Zapruder film, they made three prints each. So the implication is that they were probably going to have three briefing boards made. They went home after they made the three sets of 28 prints. And they know that other people in, at NPIC actually pasted the prints onto the briefing boards and made the briefing boards. But we were able to interview these two men who did this work two days after the assassination with a Zapruder film from the wrong location and in the wrong format. Many years later, in 2009, as I was uh, finishing work on my manuscript for my book, a researcher named uh, Peter Janney contacted me. Now, Peter Janney is the author of a book, Mary's Mosaic, about President Kennedy and his the final mistress, Mary Pincho Meyer. But he took a diversion during the writing of his book to investigate the Zapruder film because he was curious about various Zapruder film issues. He called a man named Dino Brugioni, who used to be the chief information officer at NPIC. Dino Brugioni uh, was the right-hand man of the director. He was the chief information officer. He was the man who, whose responsibility it was to assemble any and all briefing boards that were ever made for government officials for any reason. This would include uh, U2 photography, uh, corona satellite photography, whatnot. Peter Janney's father had worked for the CIA. Peter Janney's father had known Dino Brugioni back in the day, back in the 1950s and 60s. So Peter Janney took a chance and just called Dino in the cold and said, I'm Peter Janney. I'm Fred Janney's son. Uh, can I talk to you about some of your work when you were with the agency? And they clicked. They hit it off. So what Peter Janney discovered uh, during his extensive interviews of Dino Brigioni in 2009 was that Dino Brigioni saw the true original Zapruder film, the true 8-millimeter film, the one developed in Dallas, the day of the assassination, the one that was slit down to eight millimeters in width. Dino dealt with the original film one day before Homer McMahon was presented with a reconstructed and altered film. He was called in to work on the Zapruder film Saturday night, November 23rd. So this told us that 
Dino was involved with event number one with the film, and Homer McMahon and his assistant, Ben Hunter, who the review board interviewed in 1997, they were really involved with event number two. So Dino, with event number one, had the true original film. I was the duty officer that Saturday and, and Sunday. And I received the call, it was in the afternoon, by, from Mr. Lundahl to uh, get a crew in, better get a crew in, that the Secret Service was going to arrive sometime that evening with something that required some work at the center. So uh, I called Bill Banfield, head of the lab, and I called uh, Ralph Purse, a photogrammetrist. Now, Bill Banfield's res responsibility was not only the photo lab, but also uh, he had a, the unit that would make the briefing boards you know, from the photography. John McCone called Arthur Lundahl and told him the Secret Service needed some help and for us to uh, aid them in any way that we could. About 10 o'clock, they arrived, two men. They, they identified themselves as being from the Secret Service. Only Bill Banfield, Ralph Paris, and I discussed things with the uh, two Secret Service men. While you worked at NPIC, did you know a gentleman named Ben Hunter? Yes. Was he there that night with you? No. Are you sure about that? Yes. Because Ben Hunter was, was uh, in the, in, it was a photogrammetrist in, in the photo, photogrammetry, and I didn't need him. I mean, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have called him in. Did you know a Homer McMahon? I knew him, yes, but not that night. Okay. When we got to the third floor, uh, the fellow opened the box, and he showed me. I recognized it immediately. It was eight millimeter roll of film. I took the film and uh, and I put a six power two magnifier on it, and I could see uh, the print. It was fully developed. When you received it? When we, when we received it. Okay. I have here a, uh, a roll of 8mm movie film, uh, which I'd like to show you and ask you if this is the type of product you received on Saturday, November 23, 1963. Yes, I can see the individual frames in there. Okay. And I can see the sprockets. This was, this was what we had. Okay. Okay, now the problem was that we didn't have a projector to take 8 millimeter. So Bill Banfield said, uh, uh, I'll call Fuller de Albert. This was a store down in downtown Washington that uh, had photographic supplies, a lot of Eastman Kodak photo supplies. And so uh, he said, let me see what I can do. So he called the uh, manager of the store, and the manager said, yes, he had a... Uh, an eight millimeter projector, and so that he would meet Bill at the uh, at the store. So Bill goes down and, and uh, comes back with the eight millimeter projector. Can you estimate this many years later about what time he might have returned with the projector? I would say around midnight. Okay. When Bill Banfield came back with the projector, we projected it on a screen. Not once, but several times. The first time caught us all by surprise what we were seeing and that was uh, to see Kennedy's head portions of his skull fly into the air 
that was a surprise to me. That was a surprise to Bill. That was a surprise to Ralph And that was a surprise to the Secret Service men. It was a surprise to the Secret Service men. Does that mean that they had not viewed the film yet? Yes. That, I took that impression that that was the first time that they saw it. So then they, they said, let's run it slower. So they ran it slower and uh, several times. So that we, uh, then I asked him, I said, now what do you want of us? He said, well, we want prints. From, from this film. I said, all right, what, suppose you move up and you indicate which frames you want and we'll mark it. When we ran it through, we took a little piece of uh, tape. Let's say that you tell me you want this frame. I will go, that's, that's so precious that I'm not going to touch that one, but maybe 10 frames away I will, I will put a mark on the but then I will know that I have to go back 10 frames. I see. See, So you don't want to damage... The one that you want to enlarge. The one that you want to enlarge in any right. shape, form, or way. Did anyone count frame numbers from the beginning of the film to the end? Yes. Who did that? Ralph did it mostly. I see. Were they concerned with uh, number of seconds between shots? Timing? Yes. They wanted us, uh, they wanted us to, to time it. And Ralph Purr said he didn't like that idea. If that's a Bell and Howell camera, he, he knew immediately that it was spring-wound. And he knew that as it was projected, it would slow down. In other words, the timing at the beginning of the film might not be what you have at the tail end of the film. And I said, I told Ralph, I said, would you write that down? And later I, I included that in the note that I sent to Lundell. We had misgivings because we didn't know what he had the number of frames per second that he had set his camera on or the tension that was on the, on the, on the, on the wind-up. I understand. Do you recall a conclusion by the Secret Service or by your NPIC team uh, at the end of the night as to how many total shots have been fired? Do you recall anyone concluding what the total was, or, or did you? No, uh, no, no. Okay. We, we would say strictly no. They, they didn't ask, and we didn't. Okay. We didn't offer anything like that. Okay. Dino, do you think you had an original home movie or a copy? No doubt in my mind, we had the original. And why do you say that? Because two reasons. One, the 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 fact that the Secret Service was bringing it in, and the second thing is when I looked at it, it it was not processed in in a typical commercial fashion. It wasn't in a box, a little box or anything like, like that. It was very well controlled all the time. That film was controlled by the Secret Service all the time it was there. I've never seen that film like the night that I looked at it. Was the, were the images sharp or a little bit fuzzy? Maybe? No, no, they were sharp. It was obvious they, they were concerned about our handling of the film. When I told them, I said we were going to use white gloves, and I, I told them what what to do and what not to do when they were working with the film because I, I didn't want anything to disturb the film that they'd given me. I knew it was an important film. Now, it was never referred to as a Zapruder film or anything like that. It was just a, to them, it was a film, but a precious film at that. The other thing that I was worried about is that sometimes when you, when you run film through a, a projector, little chips of film will, will, uh, will break off. 
So, but this was a brand new projector so that we wouldn't have that kind of problem. And in order to make four by five inch prints from selected individual frames, what, what would the steps be for a photographer to do that? Well, they take it into the photo lab. Now you've got to make a deep DN. You've got to make, make a duplicate neg. And when you say duplicate neg, do you, do you mean as a motion picture or of individual frames? No, individual frames. Okay. The National Photographic Interpretation had the finest enlargement capabilities in the world. Would it have been normal procedure to make blow-ups from a copy film, or would you always have wanted to have the original? Was it important? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I, I would... Uh, the, the further you get away from the original, you, you lose, and especially in color, you lose it very, very fast. Uh, you get away from uh, two or three uh, from the original, and you've, you've lost... Uh, good portion of the information that you need. The idea was to give the Secret Service the best quality we could give them on the, uh, on the imagery that we were, we were looking at. Do you recall any image bleed over? No. Between the sprocket holes? No. Okay. What two or three things did they focus on the most? What did they want to see well, as a product? The, the first thing that they, uh, they kept uh, working with is the signpost where the where the uh, is a freeway sign on Elm. The freeway the, the freeway sign mm -hmm. where the the car and the occupants disappear, and then as they come out of the out of the the, the stand, that especially uh, we we moved it frame by frame so that we could get see what, what was happening to the president. And then as we pulled it away, we could see that he was, he was grabbing his throat. But, I mean, they, they made us stop it the minute the car appeared. In the projector. In, in, the, in the projection room. Mm -hmm. And then we made prints after that. Okay. Then the other one, of course, was uh, the, uh, the actual shooting of the president. We made, for, made, made prints of that. But uh, and when you say that, do you mean the head explosion? The uh, well, the head wound. The head wound. I think we made two. Just at the beginning of the uh, of the blast, and then the the one that I remember was that there was a a, a chunk of body uh, of his head uh, in uh, above his head, and uh, and then there was a. Uh, uh, there was a uh, like a little mist or cloud around it. The most startling thing I learned about the missing briefing boards made from the true original film is that Dino Brugioni, in the film that he studied on November 23rd, saw a very different head explosion than we see today in the film in the National Archives. Uh, Dino Brugioni... Uh, as he as he explained to Peter Janney in a uh, in a in a personal interview in uh, April of 2011, Dino Brugioni saw a, a much larger head explosion that went three or four feet into the air above President Kennedy's head. He described the head explosion we see today in frame 313 of the Exton film as being low in the image. He said his head explosion was very high into the air, and when Dino found out that the 
present version of the Zapruder film only has one frame showing the head explosion, frame 313. He was astounded. What I saw was more than that. More. This is frame 313. So you saw more pink mist going up straight up. I remember the scatter was high. Yeah. You know, say uh, three or four feet from his head. Uh-huh. Up in the air? Yeah. Uh-huh. This is the only frame on the whole Sapruder film that you get to see. No, there was more than that. There was the more than, so you're saying there was more than one frame, mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. How many what frames do you think there would be? I don't know, but I, all I know is that we were shocked when we, when we saw it. Right, right. If you go down to the archives, you ask for the Sapruder film, they claim that that's the, the that's, true one? That's the true one, right. The one that, the, the frames that we just looked at. No, you're shaking your head. That's not the true one, is it? Is that what you mean? I say the one that I saw, man, his head, his, it, it was way high on, on his, off of his head. Yeah, the debris. The, the, the and I can't imagine that there would only be one frame. Right. What I saw was more than what, what you had there. We have this remarkable man who still has a very sharp mind, with impeccable credentials, who helped found the NPIC in the mid-1950s, the right-hand man of the director, insisting that the head explosion he saw on the Zapruder film was very different from the one we see today, which confirms my suspicions that the film we have today is an altered film. About what time of the morning did they leave? I'd say around 3, 3, 3 4. 3 a.m.? 3, 4, in that area. When they had selected the prints that they wanted, uh, and uh, and we told them that we showed an, an example of one of them, I think, that, yeah, here, here's what, what they're going to look like, but it's going to take us time to print the rest of them. They were satisfied. They took their film, and uh, and uh, and they left. So is it fair to say that when the Secret Service departed, they took the film, they took their own briefing board, and they took no, briefing? no, 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 hmm? no, okay. not their own briefing board. No, the two two copies went to McCone. McCone gave them the, would give them the briefing board. I see. I didn't understand that. Oh yeah, I remember. Uh, I looked at the boards, and I was thinking about what time do I get Lundahl to come down? It was daylight by the time the boards were done. Now, how many uh, individual blow-ups? Or prints, do you, would you estimate that you made that night of individual frames? I'd say 12 to 15. 12 to 15. The idea was to take two briefing boards. The briefing boards were 20 by 22, and to hinge them in the center, and then to paste, paste the prints down and give the uh, frame number. So how many total sets of briefing boards did you make that night? Two. Two sets. Made one for Mr. McCone and one for the Secret Service. Okay. Each and I prepared notes for both of them. For both? Were the notes identical? Yes. Okay. Because Was I wanted to make sure that the Secret Service had the same notes that Mr. McCone had. Right. Because Mr. McCone was a, uh, was a, could be a, get pretty angry at if, if, if he knew anything was different. So I made sure the briefing boards were the same and the notes were the same. And are you the person who prepared... The sole I prepared person, the notes. You're the sole person who prepared the notes. That's right, and I typed them myself. Okay. Do you recall whether it was 
Only one page or more than one page? One page. One page. One set of briefing boards made by you and your team were two panels, each 20 by 22 inches in, in, uh, in dimensions and size, joined by a hinge in the middle. Is that in correct? The, hinge in the middle. And that hinge was for what purpose? Well, it, 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 it was so that it opened up. You, can, you could go from one, one board to the other. Was the hinge used to facilitate easier transportation of this? Yes, too. So it could be folded? It, it was that... a tape, just a piece of tape. It was a tape with, that we used uh, whenever we made briefing boards like that. Would it be fair to say that each set of briefing boards had 12 to 15 photos mounted on it? That's right. Okay. The equally distrib More or less equally distributed between the two panels. Right. Okay. When was it completed? In early morning. Uh, which morning? Sunday. Sunday morning. Sunday, November 24th? Yeah. Uh, when you say early morning, do you mean before dawn or at dawn? or no, uh, around dawn. Okay. About what time did Mr. Lundell arrive? I would say around 8 o'clock. Okay, after that. Yeah. Around 8 o'clock. I called him. Okay. I, I called him, I guess, around 7 o'clock, and he said he'd be down. He'd come down, and he came down. And uh, I went over the briefing boards with him. I showed him the notes. I went over the notes with him. And uh, also in the notes, I had the, the people that were there. And uh, incidentally, the Secret Service wanted the list of people that had seen the, uh, had been involved that night. I gave them a list. Oh, they want, did they want the name of everyone involved? That's right. Mm -hmm. And I gave them that. Mm -hmm. And I also had that in the note that I gave to Mr. Lundell. I see. Because when I, when I saw the, how, uh, you know, that this was a, uh, a big event. I wanted to make sure that if there was a leak in some kind, that everybody that was seen or involved in the printing and and their name would be re recorded. That's common in intelligence uh, organizations. You could really get burned if I information like this got out. Did Mr. Lundell only brief Director McCone, or did he also brief the Secret Service? No, he only briefed McCone. Okay. Lundell, I gave him a note so that. McCone could give the board to the Secret Service and the note to go with them. I see. Is it fair to say you presume that Director McCone gave the Secret Service their briefing board? Their, their briefing board, right, okay. and probably talked to them. He probably met with the Secret Service. I understand. Did you know someone named uh, Pierre Sands? Oh, yes. And what was his job at NPIC? He was a deputy director of NPIC. Was Pierre Sands uh, at NPIC the night that you were engaged in this activity? No. If he was, are you sure you would remember that? Oh, sure. Okay. Do you know in the mid-1990s, uh, specifically in the year 1997, uh, the organization that I worked for, the JFK Assassination Records Review Board, a, a temporary agency in Washington, D.C., uh, by happenstance, we became aware of two NPIC employees who were still alive, who had also made briefing boards of the Zapruder film and had done so the weekend of the assassination. Uh, the names of those two gentlemen were Morgan Bennett Hunter, known as Ben Hunter, and Homer A. McMahon. And Mr. McMahon uh, described himself to us as the head of the color lab at NPIC. And the agency later verified that he worked for NPIC from 1960 to 1970. Uh, and his job He's title? He's a photoscientist. Photoscientist. Yeah. Okay. All right. Both men were 
fairly consistent that they thought that their activity, making briefing boards from the Zapruder film, took place about about two days after the assassination and before the funeral. That would place their event as, and they both recall that it, ha- it started late at night and went all night long. So that, if they are correct in their recollections, that would have their event starting Sunday night and going into Monday morning because they were both also quite certain that they did their work before the funeral of President Kennedy, which was on Monday, November 25th. Is there any chance that you finished your activity on Monday, the day of the funeral, instead of Sunday? No. Okay. Is it fair to say that you're quite certain that you went home on Sunday, November 24th, Sunday morning, after you finished making the briefing boards and after you turned the materials over to Mr. Lundell? Right. Did he contact you uh, later that day and tell you how the briefing went, the briefing of Mr. McCone? No, no. No, he was happy. He, he thought okay. we did a good job. He complimented okay. me, and he said, you did a fine job, and that was it. And so that's the last you saw of him that day? Yeah. Okay, and then? Uh, and, and there was no other activity. There were no shipments of film or anything else uh, mm-hmm. at that particular time. I mentioned just a moment ago that uh, the Assassination Records Review Board interviewed Ben Hunter and Homer McMahon in 1997, three times each. We showed them a surviving set of briefing boards that the CIA had turned over to the National Archives in 1993. Now, this set of briefing boards consisted of four panels that were not joined by any hinge, four separate panels. First, we asked them, did you make the briefing boards? And they both said, no, we made the prints. They made the prints for their briefing board. They described their event as... Uh, consisting of Homer McMahon, Ben Hunter, Pierre Sands, who called them in and met them at the building and brought the customer in. And the customer for them was one Secret Service agent named Bill Smith, but it was only one agent. Uh, Now, uh, Homer McMahon uh, told me twice in the interview that we tape recorded that he didn't make the briefing boards that were made from his event, he made the prints, but he knew that the briefing boards were made upstairs at NPIC. He told me that twice. So what we have here, what I'm going to show you, are uh, photographs that Peter Janney took at the National Archives in the year 2009 of these four surviving briefing board panels. I'd like you to take your time and look at them. And... After you examine them, I'd like you to tell me if you think that these briefing boards in the National Archives are the ones that you made. They are not the ones that I made. And I can tell that because at no time did I put frames missing. This board says six frames missing, two, three frames missing, four frames missing. I didn't do that. And then these uh, start, that's not my work. Okay. Do those briefing boards in the archives, they want, you're looking at the images, do they list frame numbers anywhere for each print? No. They don't? No. But uh, is it fair to say that you're absolutely certain that on your briefing boards you listed the frame number of each Ralph, print? Ralph Purse counted. Mm-hmm. And you remember seeing that text on the briefing board before you gave it to Mr. Lundell? And I didn't have uh, panels, numbers. I didn't have that on there. And the other thing is there's a lot more uh, prints here than, than I made. Uh, do you know, associated with those four briefing board panels in the archives 
are a set of working notes. I never did see these. These are uh, computations that, that I've never seen. We didn't have time to do all this. That's another thing. Under normal circumstances, Dino, since you were the duty officer the weekend after President Kennedy was assassinated on Friday, you were the duty officer Saturday and Sunday, should you have been notified if there was briefing board activity at NPIC that weekend? No, I thought about that because I, I told Lundahl I was going home to sleep. So Lundahl didn't call me that day at all. On Sunday? On Sunday. I told him, he said, you've done a good job. He complimented me. And he said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to get some breakfast, and then I'm going to go home and sleep. And he he said, okay. So... Uh, so I hadn't, uh, if they uh, appeared on Sunday night, I didn't know anything about it. Were Pierre Sands, Homer McMahon, or Ben Hunter at the event at which, over which you presided? No. Okay. No, just Ralph Pierce, Bill Banfield, and then uh, I think it was about three in the lab and three in the uh, pasting the thing together. And Homer McMahon wrote these notes. Uh, he and Ben Hunter wrote, wrote this one page, the front and the back of this one page. It says shoot inner negatives one and a half hours, process and dry two hours, print test one hour, make three prints each one hour, process and dry prints one and a half hours. The total time for this job is seven hours. So Mr. McMahon explained to me in 1997 that uh, this refers to making of the making of prints, enlargements, very similar to what you did. He made three prints of each, yes. each one? Yes. So what that implies, what that has always implied to me, and I'd like to get your opinion on this, is that the Homer McMahon briefing board event, that they probably made three sets of briefing boards. Otherwise, why would they make three prints from each inner negative? That's right. That's right. It was, he said it was so sensitive that the Secret Service agent named Bill Smith took all the scraps with him, all the scraps left over, test print, uh, all the scraps from the making of and leftovers from the making of their enlargements with them when he left NPIC uh, the next morning. And, uh, and, and therefore, if, if Mr. Bill Smith was that concerned with scraps, they would not have, in my view, they would not have made they three have prints made each three, three unless, they, unless they wanted three sets of briefing boards. No, no I made sure yeah. that every print was, uh, it was accounted for. If not, if it was destroyed, then I destroyed it. Understand. When Janie first showed me, uh, you know, that there were other people involved, I said, "Boy, that's strange. That's, that was news to me." When he when he told me that two years ago in two thousand nine. Yeah. Right? Because at no time did Lundahl ever tell me about it. Every morning we had briefings, and uh, I, I attended every one of those meetings, every one of those briefings. So would you describe? You would describe that as unusual, to say the least. Oh yeah. That he didn't tell. Now, this, this event Sunday night, uh, per, where the prints were made by Homer McMahon and Ben Hunter, they were called in by, they were met at the facility, apparently called in by Pierre Sands, who you've described as the deputy director for ANPIC. Uh, now, the only thing I can put, uh, I, I've thought a lot about this, is that Lundahl called Pierre and said, well, Dino's tired, and uh, we got to, can you spare him? Or, but he didn't tell me that. That's, that was my, going to be my next question. If it had been a routine evolution and there was nothing unusual about it, wouldn't he have told you about it? Yeah. So the fact that he didn't tell you about it, 
Does it, does it mean to you that Lundell didn't know what Pierre Sands was doing, or is it more likely that he did know and that Lundell is the man that told him to go in and do it? Lundell probably told him to go in. And, uh, and, and the thing about it is, though, uh, I, don't, I don't see where, is the, uh, where are the, the labs? Certainly this was sensitive. What, what about Bill Banfield? And, well, Bill Banfield okay. was a, I'm but, glad you. I mean, where, where's the other people that yeah. that? I'm glad you brought that up, Dino. Homer McMahon and Ben Hunter were told by the Secret Service agent Bill Smith on Sunday night, November 24th, you may not discuss this activity with anyone, not even with your own boss. And if anybody asks what the overtime is about on your time card, you're to go to Captain Sands about it. So my question for you is, was Bill Banfield Homer McMahon's boss? If Homer McMahon was in charge of the color lab, would Bill Banfield have been his boss probably? Well, the certainly he, he would have had to call Bill Banfield to get the lab people in or have, because, uh, you know. Homer McMahon told us that he probably did all that himself that night, opened up the lab and unlocked all the different doors and, and turned on the power. He probably did all that himself. He also told us... That's uh, rare. He also told us that he was not contacted, and by that he meant the context of the conversation was he, he was not contacted by the duty officer is what he meant. So would you say that's a fair statement, that he was not contacted by the duty officer that week? Well, no, because uh, I would... I would I would have known. So who's the duty officer that week? Yeah, that's it. It was you, right? Yeah. After McCone left the CIA, the briefing board comes back. They cleared out his desk and sent it back. And I have a special map cabinet. Only me and Lundahl has a combination of it. The board comes back without the notes. Lundahl gave it to me. Okay. said, put it away. Only you and I are, are, can see it. So I put it in the, uh, in the map cabinet, put the lock on it, and la it laid there. Then when the investigation of uh, the Rockefeller Commission, the investigation of CIA and domestic activities came up, we were called in and said, now make a list of every contact that you've had with people involved in domestic activities. During that discussion, uh, uh, I told Mr. Hicks, I said, I've got the Zapruder film. And he blew up. God damn it, what the hell are you doing with that? And that's the language he used? That's the language he used. And then he said, get the goddamn thing out of here. Is that a, that, that sounds like a verbatim quote. Is that's that a, a verbatim quote. Boy, I, he, he really was mad and he was madder than hell. So I took the thing, I took the, uh, I took the, uh, board downstairs to the courier shop, and I said, wrap it and send it to the director's office. And I never heard anything about it again. Lundahl left in 1972, so it was after Lundahl left. You returned it to the director of the CIA? The director of CIA, at who, his insistence. And who, and who was Mr. Hicks? Was he, what was his he job? Was the director, he was the director of NPIC. Was he the person who relieved Mr. Lundahl when he retired? Yes. So he was the new director after Mr. Lundell. I took it as kind of a, a blow to me because I was doing what, what I was told to do. Not only that, I had, I had worked on the thing 
and I was knowledgeable, and I was good enough to, to tell him I had it. Uh, if I if I hadn't told him, it would still be in the cabinet. Did you ever discuss with Mr. Lundell the event that you supervised on Saturday night after it happened? Did you ever talk to him about it? Yeah, I told him about I told him about uh, you know Hicks being mad at me when I, when he found it. Oh, so and after Mr. Lundell had retired, you, yeah, you told oh him? yeah, oh yeah, we we used to get together about once a month. What was his reaction to that? And I, t I told him, I said, uh, you know, I got chewed out. And he said, oh, I'm sorry. He said, uh, you know, he didn't mean to put me in that position. But that, this stuff was tight, was tight. And I, uh, I I was leery, let me put it this way. Whenever you handle something like that, you're leery of a leak. And that's why, one reason why I had gotten the names of everybody, so that if something leaked, somebody talked out of turn, uh, we would know who it was, and as far as as far as Bill and 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 uh, and and the others, you know, uh, there was no no talking there. They we we made it very clear to the lab and and to the others that they were not to speak to anybody about it. Because once I once I saw that, once I saw that head part of the head go into the air, I, I knew this was sensitive material. I showed Hicks the boards. Before I sent him away. You did show Mr. Hicks the briefing board. Yes, I did. That's important. I, I wasn't clear on that. Yes, I did. Before I took him downstairs, I showed him that what I had, and I said, I'm sending him to the director's office. Okay, so... He saw, we, he saw what I had. So we have a, in my view, we have a conundrum here. Yeah. Mr. Hicks knew that your briefing board was two panels joined with a hinge because you showed it to him. Yeah, I showed it to him. He knows about a four-panel set because he's written about it and forwarded the notes about its creation to uh, DDS&T. So my question for you is this. Did Mr. Hicks ever share with you, Dino, the fact that one set of four briefing board panels was found at NPIC? No. Okay. How does that make you feel today? Well, it bothers me that I can't imagine Lundahl sending people in and not telling me, because I was so close to Lundahl. You were. Would it be fair to describe you as his right-hand man? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Even more than the deputy director, perhaps, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Because you prepared. Is it not I, true? I you was, prepared briefing boards for presidents. Yeah. Not only that, but uh, I, I, it, I, I would, I would, whatever I made, I would make sure that Lundahl saw it. Now the next document. Number five will be of great interest to you, I think. Document number five is a handwritten memo written by Naki. And he says, I called Bob Olson, that's the Rockefeller Commission, on May 13th to tell him no understandable textual material concerning the Zapruder film had gone from CIA to the Secret Service. I arranged for Olson to meet with uh, Director Hicks at NPIC on 514 for an oral briefing on the subject. Have you ever seen this memo before? No. Okay. And I'm surprised I, that wasn't called in. <laughs> That's my question, sir, is <clears throat> did you ever attend a briefing in which Mr. Hicks no. briefed Mr. Olson no. about the Zapruder film? How does that make you feel today? Well, he might have, He. I guess he was so ticked off with me 
is it is it possible that that you knew something that Mr. Hicks didn't want Mr. Olson to know, so he didn't call you to the meeting for that reason? Now you would think, you know, for an oral briefing on the subject, that Hicks Hicks didn't uh, didn't know the background, you know. I told him, you know, I, I told him what had happened. I said uh, I had I had worked on these, I made these, and then Lundahl told me to, when one of them came back, to probably let me uh, mention something here. Hicks taught a lot of me, and Hicks put me on a lot of very touchy projects, and he always had a lot of praise for me. He would send nice little memos to me whenever I did something good. So I, I was on, but that one time, that bothered him, really. He was mad in hell. I, I just don't understand, though, Lundahl not telling me what was going on, because Lundahl would always tell me what, what the score was, so that, and I... Uh, Lundahl would always tell me, you know, uh, if you see something where I can get burned or anything like that, you make damn sure come up, come up here and see me. And and the same thing with Hicks. Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't know. I don't know what. Uh, okay, I have a I have a question for you. This is the big. This is the sixty-four thousand dollar question. I'm dating myself, right? We have a situation where Mr. Hicks is not telling you that he's found a four-panel briefing board and a bunch of notes. No. He's not telling you that. And he's not telling Mr. Olson or the Rockefeller Commission or Naki that you made a different briefing board and had a different evolution. He's not telling them something, and he's not telling you something. Uh on top of that, we have Mr. Lundell not telling you about the second event Sunday night with Homer McMahon and Ben Hunter. Do you think that all of this withholding may indicate that there was a compartmentalized operation going on at NPIC intentionally, that, that the two groups were kept apart on purpose, that they were not supposed to know what the other group was doing? I don't know. I don't know. That's not, that wasn't like MPIC, I'll tell you that way. Not normally, huh? Oh, no. And yet it did happen that way. We, we know now that, that Mr. Hicks didn't tell you about the four briefing board panels or the notes, and we know that Mr. Hicks knew about your two-panel briefing board, and he didn't tell Naki or the Rockefeller Commission about that. It's a mystery, isn't it? And I'm surprised that I wasn't called in uh, you know, uh, Sunday night. No, not only Sunday night, but when uh, when Olson mm. for the briefing to, right. to be called up before the committee. Yeah. Yeah. Somehow, somehow, I got the impression I was supposed to be left out of this. Did you get that impression then, or, or subsequently? No, I'm getting it now. That I, you know, uh, I'm getting the impression that what I did was was. Uh, some, you know, push it, push it aside or something, and I can't understand why. It does appear to me, I would have to concur, it does appear to me as a, uh, as a former government analyst on the review board staff and as a historian that, that you were kept out of the loop in 1975. Because I'll tell you one thing, I was very honest with everything that I did, and, and uh, 
if somebody was saying, well, we're, we're going to subterfuge in that, but you won't, don't count me in on this. And, uh, and uh, the, I just can't understand, though. The only thing I can think of is that Lundahl said, oh, because I had worked all through the night, and he had seen the work that I did, you know, and he was pr- pleased with what I did for him, and he was taking it over to McCone. And I told, he said, what are you going to do? What are you doing? I said, I'm going to go home. I'm tired. I'm going to go to sleep. Mm-hmm. And the only thing I can think of is he, he'd call Sands. But why? And yet why didn't he tell you? Why didn't he, right. why didn't he tell me? Right. If it was routine operation with nothing sensitive, why didn't he tell you about it? There's only one more document to talk about. It's dated May 27th, presumably 1975. It was with these other documents that the agency sent me, so I think it's the same year. And it's a note written by an unknown person who refers to the NPIC analysis of the Zapruder film done by Captain Pierre Sands as part of a briefing prepared for John McCone. Now, we know that, Dino, we know that Pierre Sands was involved, if not the organizer, of the second NPIC briefing board event on Sunday, November 24th, starting that evening and going into Monday morning. Uh, so this sentence, once again, I have a document that appears to conflate two different events. Yeah. It talks about uh, Z-film analysis done by Pierre Sands, and then it says, as part of a briefing prepared for McCone, but that's what you did. I don't know whether this was an intent. This was an intent by someone to conflate two issues, to confuse history, and to hide something, or whether it was a poorly written document by someone who wasn't there and didn't know what they were talking about. That's that's what I, it sounds. I like. just don't know. That's what it sounds like to me. Yes. Do you have any final thoughts about that confusing time that you'd like to elaborate? No, I just, I just, uh, I, I, I took part in it. And uh, I did the boards that I told you about, and uh, the fact that uh, we had to go and get a, uh, a uh, we were using uh, eight millimeter film when I was when I was in there. The fact that uh, there were two men there at the time, the fact that I gave them notes, the fact that I gave them a list of people that were there, uh, and then that the board came back and that Lundahl knew about it and 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 uh, Hicks knew about it. I'll end with one final question. Now that we've looked at these seven documents, it's, it appears to me that Hicks had the big picture and you didn't, and he kept you in the dark about the second event. He didn't tell you they found four briefing board panels or notes. I've been out of the, either purposefully kept out of the loop, for, and I can't figure out why, because... My relationship with Lundahl was just top flight. If but he did keep you out of the let, let's just, uh, one If he kept me out yeah, of the loop, yeah. it would be because he knew I was I was too honest to, to be a part of any scheme. Because he and I were, were close. In other words, if he kept you out of the loop, it would have been because he knew you were too honest and because he might have been ordered to. Would that be a possibility? That could be a possibility, but uh, I don't know. Do you think it's possible that Pierre Sands would have done all this activity Sunday night going out of his way probably to pick different people that were not involved the night before without 
without receiving orders from Lundell. What's the possibility that Pierre Sands was freewheeling and doing this for someone now, else? Now, the people that you're talking about, yeah. they're not photo interpreters. The two people that were down there are not photo no, interpreters. And they only made the prints. But they, they, they made that clear. They didn't claim to be. They only made the prints. Yeah, but the analysis, uh, we had, uh, I was a photo interpreter. I, I could look at the imagery, and Ralph Purse could look at the imagery for anything. In other words, we were looking at the imagery uh, from a uh, photo interpretation uh, point of view, what, what we were seeing. I can't imagine, though, that you go, you go in and do the work and you don't, you're not with Sands and, and you're not keeping Lundahl posted. This, this is sensitive stuff. But I can't understand why Banfield wasn't there. You know, lab, you, you think... You, you, Something this sensitive, you'd have a lab chief in there. Eastman Kodak had a camera called a Hawkeye. And then that building, uh, Hawkeye, when they finished producing the cameras, they changed it into a photo lab. And they experimented with all things. And we had a close relationship with them. If you wanted anything done with photography, go to take, contact Ed Green and, at Hawkeye, and he would, he would do it for you. And then they had three of the most brilliant uh, photo men I think I've ever met. And, uh, and one was? Ed, one was Ed Green. Hawkeye has got the best lab for anything. That's where they developed the U2 film, the uh, satellite films, and everything else. If it was something special, if it was high priority of national interest, then it would... Uh, the U-2 would fly the mission, and the film would be brought back right to uh, Eastman mm -hmm. or to the Navy, Navy processing plant at, at Suitland. For example, the, the, the flights over Cuba fighting the missile, that was processed by the Navy. Is it fair to say that the, uh, that the CIA had a contractual, formal relationship with Kodak and the Hawkeye plant to do certain tasks oh, yeah. on demand? Oh, yeah. Sure. Okay. See, the plant was divided, and it just so happened that all the CIA material was in a classified area. And so I only visited the classified area. I didn't go into the unclassified. I was never, uh, I never did roam the unclassified area that they were working with. When I tell you that Secret Service agent Bill Smith informed Homer McMahon at INPIC on Sunday night, November 24th, when I tell you that Bill Smith told him that this motion picture film of the assassination, the Zapruder film, was processed at Hawkeye. He used the word Hawkeye Works. Uh, does that sound feasible to you, that, that a whole movie would be processed there? Yes, you want the finest work that you can get, sure. You know that if it went there, you were going to get a first-class uh, first print job. Do you know, during your interviews uh, with Peter Janney, in the year 2009, many interviews, you told Peter repeatedly that, quote-unquote, at Hawkeye Works, they could do anything, quote-unquote, they could do anything. Would you still stand by that general assessment? Oh, yeah. Did it require a, a minimum clearance level, such as top secret, to get into the, the classified area or yeah. above top secret? No, it was top secret. You had to send a message. They had to check you out. It was everything, a regular security job. So is it fair to say that you wrote a one-page synopsis of your event, making briefing right. boards from the original Zapruder film right. for the official NPIC history? Right. 
And you did this during the 1980s after you retired. Right. Now, the thing that's important to understand is that the surviving set of briefing boards, these four panels that are in the archives today, in which anyone can go and study, the images on those boards are the same as the images in the film we know today. So any alteration done to the film had to be done on Sunday, November 24th, during a 12-hour period in Rochester, New York, at Hawkeye Works. And the reconstructed Zapruder film that was delivered to Homer McMahon Sunday night uh, was the finished version. They were done. So that means the alterations were conducted during a one-day period, Sunday, November 24th. Now, was there time to do this? I think there was. Dino Brugioni recalled quite clearly uh, during my interview in 2011 that the two Secret Service agents that brought him the original Zapruder film left Washington, D.C. with the film at 3 o'clock in the morning on Sunday, November 24th. They left. They didn't wait for their briefing boards to be completed. They saw what the prints were going to look like. They left town with the film. Late Sunday night, that film, the Zapruder film, arrives again in Washington at the same building, NPIC. It's in a different format, 16 millimeters wide. Now, Homer McMahon and Ben Hunter, who worked on event number two, were cautioned that they were not allowed to discuss their event with anyone else at NPIC. They were not allowed to even discuss it with their supervisors. And if they were asked why they put in for overtime, because they had to work all night from Sunday to Monday, they were told to refer all questions to Captain Sands. Captain Sands was the deputy director of NPIC in 1963. He was a Navy captain. He opened up the facility that night, and he introduced Bill Smith of the Secret Service to Homer McMahon and Ben Hunter. They were not allowed to discuss their activity with anyone. They never knew that there was an event number one the night before. Dino Brigioni never knew that there was an event number two the night after his event until 2009 when Peter Janney informed him. And uh, he, at first he was uh, really in a state of denial because he was the duty officer all weekend. He said if there was any other activity with the film, I should have known about it. Yes, he participated in an important event, the making of briefing boards with blow-ups from the original Zapruder film, but that he was cut out of the loop later that weekend and cut out of the loop by his uh, by his own boss, Arthur Lundell. Arthur Lundell was revered by Dino Brigioni. Arthur Lundell was the head of NPIC. He was the world's preeminent photo interpreter. He was the founder of the center. He clearly kept Dino out of the loop later that weekend and had his deputy director manage a second operation the following night. So consider what this means. We've all thought for years that the original Zapruder film went to the Life magazine printing plant in Chicago Saturday afternoon and stayed there all weekend. We now know that cannot be true. Dino Brugioni said the two Secret Service agents who brought him the Zapruder film at about 10 p.m. Saturday night had never yet seen the film. They had not seen it. They were as shocked by the film as he was. The fact that they arrived at 10 o'clock at night tells me that the film was intercepted in Chicago, either at the airport when it arrived from Dallas, either intercepted at the airport or intercepted at the life facilities and borrowed by the government for the rest of the weekend. The two agents who delivered it to Dino had not seen it yet. They left at 3 a.m. the next morning, 
if we give them three hours to get to Rochester, New York, to the Hawkeye plant, uh, that gives them about 12 hours to work on the film. Let's say they start working on the film at 6 a.m., 12 hours. They might be finished with their crude, crude edits and crude alterations by 6 p.m. We know that the, uh, the double-eight version of the Zapruder film was delivered to Homer McMahon very late at night, well after dark. Let's just speculate about 9 p.m. So this, this would allow three hours for the Zapruder film to get to Hawkeye Works. 12 hours for the film to be worked on, 12 hours for basic alterations, three more hours for the film to come back down to Washington for the making of, a, of new sanitized briefing boards of an altered film. The part of the story I haven't addressed yet is what happened to the copies. Two of the copies that Mr. Zapruder had made were loaned to the Secret Service by him. They were just given to the Secret Service Saturday evening, November 23rd. The two first-day copies that were given to the Secret Service uh, were never returned. One, one was flown to Washington, D.C. late Friday night by Agent Max Phillips in Dallas. He sent it to the director, to Chief Rowley of the Secret Service. The other was loaned to the FBI in Dallas the next day on Saturday. It, it went to FBI headquarters Saturday night. My point here is that the Secret Service had in its hands, uh, let's say the middle of the night, 2 or 3 a.m., certainly by dawn, they had in their hands a first-day copy of the original Zapruder film early Saturday morning, November 23rd. They had all morning to study that film and to see what had really happened on Elm Street. If that was the film that Dino was making briefing boards from, he would have received it at 11.30 in the morning or 12 noon or 1 o'clock at the latest. He received the film at 10 o'clock at night by two agents who had just come from the airport. This is an important point that he made to me uh, during his interview off camera when the camera wasn't running, but he said, oh yes, they had just come from the airport and they had not seen the film. So the fact that he got the film so late at night, the fact that the two agents brought it from an airport the fact that they had not seen it tells me Dino Brugioni truly did have the original Zapruder film, intercepted in Chicago, hijacked, as it were, taken to Washington for the making of briefing boards. The fact that the agents had not seen it yet told me that this was not the film that had been in Washington since dawn. Zapruder kept one of his three-day copies with him over the weekend. He gave two to the Secret Service. He gave one to Life Saturday, which was flown to Chicago. He kept the third copy. Many people saw that over the weekend. Many people saw exit debris leaving the left rear of the president's head, traveling to the left rear. One famous witness of the film, Dan Rather of CBS News, insists that when he watched the Zapruder film, he saw the president's head go violently forward. Now, for years, I wondered about Dan Rather's veracity, and now I don't wonder anymore. I'm convinced that, as is another researcher, Richard Trask, who's a, who's a film archivist and historian, Richard Trask believes, and I agree with him, that Dan Rather saw Mr. Zapruder's copy on Monday of the unaltered Zapruder film. And the fact that he saw the head go violently forward and not back and to the left tells me two things. 
that, uh, yes, the film has been altered. And number two, that the head snap we see in the film today, this violent motion of the body to the left and to the rear, is probably, to some extent, an artifact of film alteration. If you're removing frames from a film to remove the exit debris traveling to the rear, if you want to remove evidence of frontal shots and you're removing frames of exit debris, you're speeding up the motion of the body in doing so. So when the, when the new film is created and the exit debris is removed, the motion of the body is speeded up because there are less frames in the film. So some of this head snap to the left rear uh, may be an artifact of film alteration. And, of course, the fact that we don't see the head going violently forward, as Dan Rather did, and as the FBI assistant director, Carthur DeLoach, did when he got the film Sunday, he saw the head go violently forward also. We don't see the violent forward head snap. Those things in combination tell me that, yes, the film has been altered. We know from the Hollywood research effort today that the back of the head has been crudely blacked out. Uh, 35 or 40 Hollywood film experts have examined these high-resolution scans. Every one of them has said that the film is not only an altered film, but a badly altered film. They've never seen so-called shadows on the back of anyone's head that look like the blacked-out areas on JFK's head in the Zapruder film. And uh, they just... Uh, see numerous problems with the evidence that they've examined. So did Zapruder film the car coming around the corner? Probably. Was there a brief car stop? Probably. Has the back of the head been blacked out to hide the true exit wound? Without a doubt. That's the one thing that I'm certain about, is that the back of the head has been blacked out. Uh, the world will soon see this evidence. It will soon be available for everyone to see. And uh, I put this to you. If the film is altered in, a, in even just one respect, the entire film is suspect. All the research done on the timing problem of the shots is suspect if frames have been removed from the film. If a car stop has been removed, then the so-called timing problem in the film, numbers of seconds between shots, is suspect. All you have to do to impugn a film or to impeach it as evidence is to prove that one aspect of it is fraudulent, that one aspect has been altered. And that has already happened. Hollywood has proved that the back of the head is blacked out in the Zapruder film. So, yes, the film is still crucially important evidence, but it's evidence today of a different type. It's not the closest thing we have to ground truth anymore, but it's, it's the ultimate irrefutable evidence of a massive government cover-up. That's the value of the Zapruder film today. It shows what people were trying to hide, trying to hide a car stop, trying to hide the true location of the exit wound and the lengths they went to to do this, to get Life magazine to pay an additional $100,000 to basically suppress the film for 12 years as a motion picture. Clearly, if a new Zapruder film was created by Sunday night, November 24th, there were new copies made. And obviously, the three first-day copies had to be swapped out. The three first-generation copies that exist today of the existing film in the archives are bracketed copies. When I say bracketed, I mean the exposure and the contrast in each one of those first-generation copies is different. One's a little bit too light, one's just about perfect, and one's a little bit dark. Uh, that's been proven beyond any shadow of a doubt by Mr. Raleigh Zavada, a Kodak film expert. There's only one problem with that.
when Mr. Zapruder took the original film over to the other lab on Friday, November 22nd, and had his three first-day copies made, those exposures were not bracketed. The recollections of the people at the Jameson lab who made the three contact prints were that they used the same light pack for all three contact prints. They did not bracket the exposures. So it's my conclusion, and it's my contention, that the three copies today that are called first-generation copies, they're not the true first-day copies of the original unaltered film. They're first-generation copies of the reconstructed film. to the Detour Podcast Network on iTunes and don't forget to rate and review while you're there. You can also download the Stitcher and Podbean app to your device for free and search Detour Podcast Network and subscribe. If you enjoy listening to the shows on the Detour Podcast Network, then spread the word to everyone you know. Your word of mouth is our best advertising method and we appreciate your support. Thanks for listening.
Do you have a question, comment, or concern? 872-242-8311. Or maybe you'd just like to hear your voice instead of ours. 872-242-8311. Then call the D2R Podcast Network hotline at USA Chat 311. That's 872-242-8311. 872-242-8311. No matter the time or day, you can call 24-7 and operators will be standing by. 872-242-8311. Your call is important to us. 872-242-8311. So once again, USA Chat 311. 872-242-8311. 872-242-8311. 872-242-8311. Check out all the great deals on Amazon by first going to d2rpn.com and clicking the Amazon banner. By doing so, you're helping out the D2R Podcast Network. Don't forget to tell a friend, and thanks for listening. Hey, Dave. Hey, Ryan. You know what time it is? Yeah, it's time for the Twisted Crypt Haunted House. Holy cow. Opening night, Friday, September 20th, 2019. The first 30 paid guests get a free t-shirt. That's right. They're open all Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays through Halloween. Friday and Saturday, they're open 7 to 11.30. And Sunday, they're open 7 to 10. Where are they located? 5420 East State Street in Rockford, Illinois. Right behind Tom and Jerry's and Uncle Nick's. Awesome. We'll see you there. Hell yeah. Yeah. 